Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is AppSats Radio, help for partners after sexual betrayal. We talk about it here. Betrayal trauma. We are AppSats certified clinical partner specialists and coaches who have been trained to help navigate you through this crisis. There is nothing we won't talk about. Sometimes listeners want to know about triggers. I'm dealing with the aftermath of my husband's affairs, and he still works the same job that he did when he was acting out. It's a job that allows him to hide his goings-on and one that he stated was a previous trigger for his acting out. The whole 16 and a half years we've been together, he's acted out. In the beginning, what I thought it was was just pornography. Um, it ended up being, I found out two and a half years ago, he had been with multiple prostitutes. I only found out a very small portion of that until about a month ago. How do you cope with all of that when you still have to deal with unavoidable triggers? Well, of course you would feel traumatized by hearing all that information and I gotta tell you Stephanie that's a staggered disclosure that's finding out little bits and pieces about your husband's behavior throughout a time period making you feel insecure unsure and unsafe so what we gotta do is set up a situation whereby you get with a specialist to do a formal disclosure so you can hear everything at one time in a safe environment assets wants to provide for you. We know that you're experiencing lots of issues around safety and stabilization. And so I feel so fortunate that I can be here with you today and help get you through this to the best of your ability and our ability. You know, APSATS is an organization that's partner trauma sensitive. We help get you through things, understanding that a lot of your reactions, that your experiences are trauma-based. And that's the nice thing, that there's people out there that understand your condition. And wow, you know, you never thought you were going to be in this place. You couldn't have imagined it for a million years. And so here we go. Um, We're on this ride together. That's what this radio show is all about, Betrayal Recovery Radio by AppSats.org. I'm Carol Jurgensen-Sheets, a.k.a. Carol the Coach, and we did a replay last week because many of us from our organization were at SASH, the Society for the Advancement of Sexual Health. And I got to tell you, There are so many wonderful things about getting together, learning new skills, learning new techniques, learning about the new research that's out there on sex addiction and partner betrayal, not to mention just sexuality in general. And it just gives me a lot of gratitude. I got to see so many of the people at AppSats that, you know, I trained with. I went to school with, I got certified with, I got to see my teachers, <laughs> I, got, I am a teacher, so it just, it was old homes week, I adored it, and I got to do, as you well know, with the great Lori Hall, our president, I got to do a pre-conference seminar on the book, Help Her Heal, and then Lori did information on uh, internal family systems, and that went over really well. And then the next day, Barbara Stephens, the founding president, um, and Patrick Carnes, who you may have heard of, he actually certifies uh, sex addiction therapists, and he's a psychologist, and he put together the Green Book and SAA, which is Sex Addicts Anonymous. And so I got to hear both of those heavy hitters. And that was 
so inspiring. And then on Friday, I got to have the morning breakout session. And I got to tell you, um, there were seats for probably about 40 because they were square rectangular uh, tables. And I was doing it on helping couples heal. And um, people came in, you know, it's interesting because, you know, 10 minutes till, you're lucky if you got six people in the room. And then four minutes till, wow, it was filled to the guild. And then one minute till, it was standing room only. And they told me a sash, and I just felt so fortunate to be talking about this topic, helping couples heal through sexual betrayal. They told me that it was the largest breakout session that they had ever had. They said, what are you talking about again? Because we have never experienced this kind of attendance for anybody besides a uh, keynote. So I felt so fortunate and, you know, I felt blessed that people want to learn how to help the couple work through this. And, you know, if at all possible, keep them together. If you can't keep them together, that's okay too. I mean, there have been couples that I said, you know, guys, you just keep hurting each other and this isn't healthy. What are you going to do? And they look at me and they say, we're ready to call it quits. And then we talk about the pros and cons to that. And if that's what either one of them really wants to do, then it's important to go ahead and do that. However, I got to tell you, for the sex addicts that I work with, um, they don't, they don't want to call quits. They want to repair the relationship. They don't know how. They're horrible at it, (laughs) horrible, but they really don't want to quit. They want to show their partner their love. And so, you know, I want to help the couple heal if that is possible. So to be able to share what I believe has really helped the couples that I work with and what I wrote about, obviously, in Help Her Heal, uh, this was a real blessing. Now, everybody said, oh, did you have a great time at the, at the, at the conference? And I said, oh, I sure did. And they said, I said, but there were, there were highs and lows. And they go, oh, we never hear you talk about lows. What were, what were the lows? Well, I got to tell you, it was going to be my first book signing. And I could not wait to have my first book signing. And so... Um, it was, I got there on Tuesday night and I went down Wednesday morning and said, where are my books? Where are my books? Because they were sent and they couldn't find them. And I just assumed that it was the hotel that had misplaced them. So I said, oh, please find them. I got a pre-conference. I'd like to sell some. I'd like to show them. I didn't even bring a book myself. Um, That's what this course is all about. And so uh, they did their best to find the books that actually were not even there. But I didn't know that yet. So on Wednesday, I go straight down at 7 a.m., and I say, where are my books? And they said, well, shipping just opened up here at the hotel. You know, give us give us a half hour, please. So I gave them a half hour. I came back down, where are the books? And um, I was going to have a book signing that day. And they said, Oh, well, your books aren't here. And so I contacted my publisher, who actually was flying in. He's a, it's a publishing company that is run by a CSAT. And I said, Darren, where are my books? And he says, well, they should be delivered there this morning. And I'm like, this morning? <laughs> Darren, I've got a book signing at 1030. Are we going to make it? Oh, I'm sure we will, but I'll check on it. Then he called me back and he said, OMG, Carol, your books are in Louisville. And, you know, mistakes happen and accidents happen, and I really don't know how that did happen. And it really doesn't matter. What mattered was that 
I couldn't have my book signing. And he said, he sends me a text and goes, I know you're crestfallen. I know you're heartbroken. I know you're crushed. And um, I didn't answer. I was. And I was mad. But I just knew that the that I was mad enough that I wanted to wait to decide how I wanted to handle it because the truth of the matter was it was totally out of my control now. I didn't have any control. All I could do was use my voice and express myself. But I had already kind of expressed myself to him because when he said that he sent them out um, the morning of, I'm like, you should have sent them here days before the conference started. That's what people do. You know, so then I saw him at the conference, and, of course, I waved. And, you know, um, we were supposed to have lunch, and he said, I bet you don't want to have lunch with me. And I said, well, I can't have lunch, but I would go to the arch, the arch, the St. Louis arch, and uh, hang out with you. And he said it was the highlight of his, his conference. And, you know, here's what I know to be true. So women, take note. In normal, healthy relationships, and I know you're not in a normal, healthy relationship right now, probably not. Maybe it's getting that way. I certainly hope so. But in normal, healthy relationships, John Gray, the Venus and Mars guy, he says the number one thing we can do when a man messes up is forgive them with grace. Now, I'm not applying that to partner betrayal right now. I'm just talking about in general. He said that is absolutely the number one thing we can do because we can cut somebody down with our body posture, our eyes, um, our voice, our assertiveness. And when you give them the gift of being wrong and, and not rubbing their nose in it, so to speak, um, it is a real gift. And so that's what I decided to do with um, my friend Darren. And you know what? I felt better for it. You know, half the time, let's face it, what we choose to do, we really need to say, will that make us feel better? I'm doing a, uh, I'm creating right now a post-traumatic growth online course for you all. And I'm interviewing partners all over the world that have claimed, named and claimed that they got post-traumatic growth. So I'm giving them the, the survey, and then I am asking them specific questions, and they're actually allowing me to videotape them, and it, it will be in the course. But overwhelmingly, the feedback I'm getting is that what... Um, has created post-traumatic growth is when we hold ourselves accountable for our own happiness. Now, do you know what I mean by that? What I mean is that if we, if you as a partner, because I'm not a partner, but if you as a partner, if you're choosing to wait on your husband to create your happiness and to provide you safety and stabilization, um, it, it likely will not work because you're dependent on somebody else. So you've got to find that within yourself. Now, if your husband is working on good recovery and something comes up and you don't feel safe, you know, that means reminding yourself that that was the past and today's the present and he's working it well and and stay focused on the moment. If he isn't working good recovery, then you've got to say to yourself, okay, what can I do to help make myself feel safer and more stable? Because the truth of the matter is um, I am teaching the sex addict how to do that. But in the meantime, uh, you've got to figure out how to, make, how to do that for yourself. Today I talked with a woman and I said, you know, the next time he looks at another woman and you catch him gazing at her and you're counting and you swear that it's over six seconds long, 
remove yourself from the situation. Go to the bathroom. Um, tell him that you are going to go for a walk because you don't like what's going on and you'll be back. You know, do something that pulls yourself, removes yourself out of that situation. Because you can do that for yourself and then hopefully he, like most of the addicts that I work with, want to learn how to help you heal. They want to create safety and stabilization. And let's say that to do that, they have to have empathy, right? Now, today, I am interviewing Joshua Shea, and he has an amazing story. He's a recovering pornography addict, and he has an amazing story that actually resulted in jail. And then he came out of that, made a a decision that he was going to stay clean and sober and then give back. And that's the other thing about post-traumatic growth for sex addicts. If they can give back, that's what Patrick Carnes says is the all-important thing that they need to do once they've really learned how to manage their recovery. So I'm very excited to have him on the show. And I just realized when I was, uh, while I was looking at the write-up of the show, I forgot that Blog Talk Radio does not allow me to write pornography. So they caught some of them and they take the P out or they take the P-O-R out and it just says nography. So I'm going to have to fix that. But if you are seeing that because you download that show immediately, you will get those changes too as soon as I make them after the show. I've got to respect Blog Talk Radio. They don't want anybody using their site for anything that would be um, immoral, illegal, addictive, you name it. So, Joshua, I am so glad to have you back on the show. I know that this is a different format than the last one that you were on, but you have such an amazing story. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Carol. Thank you so much for having me back. I appreciate it. Well, you're you're a natural-born inspirationalist, and you're also a good entertainer. I can tell that, you know, with all your writing, you really know how to tell a good story. And this is like a lifetime movie, what you went through. And so I thought maybe you could <laughs> share initially a little bit about what it was like for you um, to develop this addiction and how you coped with it. And then, of course, what happened to you? Yeah, um, you know, it's it's similar to a lot of people. Um, I developed my addiction when I was very young. Um, I truly believe the first time that I saw hardcore pornography, I was addicted to it, much like um, I had issues with alcohol, too. And the first time I got drunk when I was 13 or 14 years old, I knew that I'd found something special. Um, Pornography for me was an escape. It was a coping mechanism. It was one of those things that was always there. I could always count on whether I, whether I was in high school or college or in my twenties, you know, it didn't matter whether it was a videotape or a magazine or the computer screen. It was always there for me. It always made me feel better. It never let me down. It never disappointed. Um, It always delivered on its promises. And the uh, ironic thing is that I don't, think that I realized during that entire time that I was actually a pornography addict. Um, I hid, I knew that looking at pornography was not something that was socially acceptable or that we talked about. And I hid it from people, including my wife, uh, whom I married when I was 26, um, back in 19, or back in, sorry, 2003. Um, and, I kind of just went along for about 20, 22 years as a pornography addict um, and alcoholic. People recognized that I had the alcohol problem, and I think that actually helped to hide the fact I had a pornography problem. Um, Nonetheless, uh, professionally, I 
was doing very well for myself. And in 2009, 2010, I launched a magazine uh, where I live here in central Maine, uh, a lifestyle magazine that despite the fact we were in the worst economy since the Great Depression, became an overnight success. And I had uh, a little bit of trouble adjusting to that. It kind of played to my ego. And I became a little bit of a workaholic for a couple of years as well. Um, as happens with just about every business, it stops being the new shiny thing. And at about the four-year mark, we started plateauing with our revenues. And our expenses kept rising. And when plenty of money is coming in, I'm very good at being a businessman. But when times are tight, I'm not so good. So I made the very horrible decision to pull myself off of my bipolar medication that I had been on since I was 23, 24 years old. I remembered probably romantically the extra energy I had from that age. I remembered the extra creativity I felt from that age. And I simply made the mistake of pulling myself off of it, which was probably the biggest mistake I've ever made because within a few months, my alcoholism and my pornography addiction had absolutely exploded on me. Um, and it started, it, it, it started to get to the point where I was only sleeping three or four hours a night. My relationship with my family was starting to fall apart. Uh, my relationship with my business partners did fall apart. And I wasn't doing anything to save the magazine. Um, I was also a local politician, a city councilor, and I was absolutely neglecting those duties as well and just trying to keep it together. But um, the addictions weren't enough and, and drinking beer, you know, only at night quickly became drinking beer at lunch, drinking beer right after work, and then after everybody had gone to sleep at night at my house, uh, drinking tequila. Um, so I was, I was drinking much more during the day, and then the pornography graduated from just being on a screen, you know, pulling up pictures, pulling up videos, to actually going into chat rooms and to begin uh, talking with women and trying to convince them to do uh, either sexual things or take off their clothes, um, whatever I, I felt like on that particular yeah. night. And, uh, you, sure. You really feel like um, it was the stress from work. It was the fact you went off your medication and it was how you felt about yourself since you weren't top dog anymore. Is that correct? Well, that, that, that was, that was absolutely it. And I also, at the time, was starting to get these weird flashbacks to my youth, which I'll, I'll explain in a minute. Um, just and and I, you know, and and I was instead of getting this manic high, I started getting a depression that I'd never felt before. And one of the only things I felt like, you know, like as you said, losing the top dog thing, I felt like I was losing control in my life. I could look in the crystal ball and see I probably had only six months to a year left of running the magazine if it kept going the way it was. Um, I didn't enjoy my time on the city council. I didn't see my relationship with my family improving greatly. There just there was nothing looking up. The only thing that I ever felt like I was ever good at at that time or ever felt in control was when I was talking to the women online. Um, when I could convince somebody who said she wouldn't do wouldn't take her top off, for instance, you know, if I spent an hour working on it and got her to do it, well, there was my control. There was my uh, success. There, were, there was something I was still good at in life because I felt like I was good at nothing else. And um, as I mentioned to you on our last call, um, you know, I, I don't blame the addiction for this. I don't blame anybody else for this. I knew that I had mental health issues, and I made the decision to pull myself off of my medication. Um, so I, I do – this is completely on me. I don't want to minimize or rationalize anything uh, that I'm about to mention, but I, I just want to you know, throw that disclaimer out there. Um, in March of 2014, as everything was kind of imploding in me on my life, 
the Maine State Police showed up at the door with a search warrant and told me that one of the women that I had spoken with online was actually a teenager. And once they, you know, showed me the evidence, there was really nothing I could do about it um, because they had me and they were right. Um, the fact that I didn't know she was a teenager at the time is absolutely no excuse because I know there were 15-year-olds who look like 25-year-olds, and I know there are 25-year-olds who look like 15-year-olds. And in my you know, ill state, I think it just didn't matter to me. Um, so I, I, I ended up uh, in the t- – I was two years between my arrest and my uh, conviction and sentencing. Um, in those two years, I first went to alcohol rehab. I spent 70 days there. Uh, shortly after that, I went to um, sex and porn rehab in Texas. I spent seven weeks mm-hmm. there. I did a, I did and a hey, lot Josh, of one-on-one. Yes. Can I ask you one question? So then I get that, you know, due to the mental health issues and the compulsivity um, and the stress that you didn't – it probably didn't matter if she looked 15 or 20 or 18 – but when they arrested you, was your intent to speak with somebody under the age of 18? I mean, are you saying, no, no that wasn't no. my intent, but I didn't care, you know? Right. That's what I'm saying. I don't, they looked at, because one of the things that I did um, when I was in the sessions with these women was that I would take a screen capture at the end of the time I was talking with them. And this, again, plays to the control factor, because while I would take a screen capture of them doing whatever it was they were doing, I never used those for any gratification purposes. I used those as trophies. They made me feel good. You know, if I wanted to gratify myself, I knew how to use the Internet and find that kind of stuff. This was kind of my trophy collection. And the police went through all of those pictures and said that was the only one who was under 18. Um, So... It wasn't something where yeah. I was looking for it, but like you said, you know, if I'm, uh, I, I wouldn't have stopped and talked to somebody who looked like they were fourteen, fifteen years old, but she looked like enough of a woman, so that was good enough for me at the time. I wasn't going to split hairs on it. Right, and lots of addiction and stinking uh, thinking from both the alcohol standpoint. And, and sex addiction and porn standpoint. So, okay, go ahead and continue. And I just want to say to our listening audience that's primarily partners that this may be a bit triggering, but this is a man who has made it his mission to be open, honest, vulnerable, and authentic and to help men with their pornography issues. So I just want to remind them of that as you continue on with your story. Okay. Well, um, so like I said, I went to these rehabs. I was in very intense one-on-one therapy. I did some group therapy and me being a research guy, a former journalist, I did as much reading as I could on the subject um, of addiction and porn and sex addiction that I could find. Um, When I ended up, I ended up being sentenced to six months in jail And while I was in there, um, I started talking with the guys around me. Most of them were there for uh, drug uh, arrests or um, domestic violence arrests. And they knew because I was a bit of a local celebrity and it was always in the newspaper, anything that happened to me. So before I got to um, before I got to jail, there was a big article in the paper about me. So they knew who I was and what I had done. And within a few days, a couple of guys have started talking to me about one about their porn issues and one about their sex addiction issues. And that continued to happen while I was there, that more and more guys would talk to me about these issues. And it was surprising because they didn't seem completely embarrassed by their heroin use or all that bothered that they slapped their girlfriend around. But when it came to talking about sexuality and porn and, and, and sex addiction, uh, they really, really had trouble talking about it because of all the shame. And I recognized and remembered how when I first was arrested, I went to the bookstore and the only books I could find about porn addiction were either very academic 
or they were written by women who had gone through having a partner who was a porn addict, and none of that really spoke to me um, on a on a you know one on one level. So I decided when I was in jail that I would write my uh, memoir that focused on the last five years of my life and my addiction. It's kind of the rise and fall of my magazine uh, in time with the uh, explosion of my uh, both alcohol and porn addictions. And uh, so that came out back in January of last year. I started a website at that point. Um, and, you know, I've continued with my therapy. I continued uh, in, in my study recovery. But what struck me as uh, interesting that I did not expect after the book came out, after the website was up, uh, I thought I'd be contacted by some addicts, and I have been contacted by quite a few. Um, I have been contacted by just as many, if not more, women who are either the partners or sisters or mothers of pornography addicts um, who are looking for some kind of help and they're not necessarily finding it in academic books or they're, you know, they feel like they're not being heard by their husband who, or their boyfriend or son or whoever it is who has a problem. And they were looking for more out there. Um, so that's why I started on a second book that'll be out later this year um, called He's a Porn Addict, Now What? And I worked with mm -hmm. a therapist. I worked with a therapist who gave kind of the – uh, education side of things, and I gave my personal history side of things to try to give a bit of a complete picture to partners who find themselves completely lost and are and are stuck in this betrayal um, of, of of pornography and of sex. Um, so yeah. I'm just trying to be out there, being a source of support, whether you're an addict or a a woman who needs some insight into what the addict might be thinking. Uh, which isn't always pleasant, but I'll always be honest. Um, no, I know. Uh, you know, I try, I try to be there as a, for support. Yeah, let me ask you, because obviously um, I wanted to find out how your wife felt about this in terms of what did she express and what were her ups and downs, because obviously when this kind of thing is exposed, it's humiliating for the entire family. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, luckily, my son was young enough at the time that he wasn't at a place in school where um, the kids would know about it. But my daughter was a freshman in high school and she switched schools right after it happened um, because she didn't want to be around any of her friends. She ended up returning to the other school, but immediately she, she felt like she had to be out of there. My wife, you know, they always say the, the people around the addict are just as sick as the addict. And my, my wife was not doing well. She had gained a huge amount of weight, uh, you know, mostly worrying about my alcoholism because I hit the porn thing pretty well. But she's even told me in the last few years that in those last six, seven months before I was arrested, she largely had to let me go for her own health because she was always worried about the fact that I might be drunk driving or that I was out working too hard or, you know, I wasn't helping around the house. I was, I was providing money, but I wasn't really doing anything to be an active husband, an active father, an active member of a household. And she kind of had started the process of detaching from me emotionally uh, to save herself. And the day that I was arrested, I called her and she came to bail me out and I got into our Jeep. Uh, she was waiting for me outside the uh, uh, sheriff's office. I got into the Jeep and I looked at her and I said, listen, um, let me just say something. Um, there's, there's nothing I'm going to fight you about here. Uh, no questions asked. If you want a divorce, I completely understand. I won't fight you on anything. I get it. And she looked at me and she just said, it wasn't a little kid, was it? And I said, no, it wasn't. It was a teenager. She said, okay. We know you've been sick for a long time, and I know you looked at porn, but I didn't realize that it had gone to this place. Um, let's get you some help. And within 10 days, I was out in California uh, at my alcohol rehab. Um, she, I, dis I disclosed the things that had happened to her. Um, giving her headlines and then letting her ask more specific questions if she wanted to know. There were certain things she didn't really want to know um, and certain things she did want to know, but she uh, 
thankfully, because she works in healthcare, was able to wrap her arms around the idea that addiction is a disease and addiction is a sickness. Now, had I not shown interest basically immediately at improving myself, I don't think that we would have stayed together very long. And I know that there were many difficult sections of it for her when I would uh, go away to rehab for weeks at a time and when I was in jail for six months. Um, there was one point where she did transfer jobs because she did feel like she was being treated like a second-class citizen. It, it just happened to start shortly after um, my very public arrest. Um, so I think you know we can draw a correlation to that. Um, when I was at my second rehab, which was almost a year after I was arrested, um, she actually began the process of getting lap band surgery, which she ended up getting about two years ago now, and she's dropped over 120 pounds. Um, and she's probably healthier. She saw a therapist as well, and she's probably healthier than she's ever been, both mentally and physically, as am I. And I think we have a better marriage now. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to work on this book was to let people know I have a better marriage now than I've ever had. Um, a couple of weeks back, we went to a county fair, just her and I, she took the day off from work. And I was, I told her on the ride home, I said, you know, I've always loved you. I've always loved you very much. And I still love you very much, but I actually really like you now. And she said that she had been thinking the same thing recently that, you know, we get along very well. There's an intimacy, and in, not just in the bedroom, but an intimacy to our thoughts and to our feelings that has never been there before, and a communication that's never been there before. We just really enjoy each other's company, and I honestly don't think that ever would have happened had we not gone through this entire ordeal. Well, and it sounds like she has had some Al-Anon or something to help her to detach. Is that true? Um, she didn't go to any uh, Al-Anon or, or, or that kind of uh, deal. She did go to one-on-one -on -one therapy, and she did talk to uh, a very close friend of hers who had a husband that had sex addiction um, and about the process that she went, that she went through and that he went through. Um, and we did, you know, my, my wife also did see my therapist a few times for some ther family therapy with the kids um, where, where I wasn't present. Um, but and then she did some reading on her own. But I think also I think I think the lap band surgery and the process of uh, going through it, being approved for it was a big step for her because she you know, had to lose. I think it was 20 pounds on a diet. So that was her having to have a little bit more um, uh, control then. And she had given up a lot of her control to me. She'd given up a lot of her control to the kids. She was just trying to skate along in life and uh, not let too much hurt her. And she now, you know, really has control and speaks her mind in a way that she hadn't before. And I think I speak my mind in a way I hadn't before. And instead of both of us being scared that the other would freak out and leave, um, it's made us stronger. And we, neither of us would have probably predicted that. Oh, and I'm sure she's really proud of the fact that you have made it uh, your purpose and your goal to reach out to to the world, the community, and and help you know families and kids figure out how to navigate this at an earlier age. Like you said, you actually you were exposed to porn at age eleven. That, I'm, it was ten or eleven. I'm not exactly sure, but it was before I was a teenager, and it was. Uh, a cousin of mine who had a few hardcore pornography magazines, a penthouse or hustler, whatever it was. And that was the first time that I'd ever seen, you know, naked people actually engaged in intercourse. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd seen, you know, naked people on HBO or something, but that was the first time I'd seen hardcore sex in front of me. And it just made some light go off. Well, I get that. You know, obviously we, we tell people that many, many, many folks have a predisposition to addiction and that light goes off a lot harder with more intensity and frequency than for other people. And then if you combine that with maybe some previous trauma, some childhood right. family of origin right. issues, 
it can be the perfect storm for wanting to numb out and use pornography to occupy the loneliness and the boredom and the sadness and the anger that accompanies being a child and being an adolescent and being a young adult. So I get that. Um, and on, understandably, your wife had a food disorder on some level. You know, her stress contributed to her wanting to medicate with food, and, and she decided to take it into her own hands to really get healthy. And, you know, Joshua, one of the things that I talked to women about in getting to a post-traumatic growth is to really start focusing on themselves and what do they need. What do they need to be healthy? What do they need to be safe? And what do they need to have purpose? So I'm going to ask you a question that was not discussed previously. What purpose do you think your wife has or serves now um, that you two are really rebuilding your relationship? I think that we feel like we have something more than a business partnership. Um, I feel like we have, you know, we're friends. And I know that's strange to say, but, you know, our our job early on was to, you know, uh, get a house, get two cars and, you know, raise our children to be functioning, decent members of society and to pay our bills. And, you know, we checked off all these boxes, but uh, I think both of us had issues with emotional intimacy. Um, and, you know, it, it's, I was, you know, we were, we were okay in, in the bedroom. Um, it wasn't something that, you know, porn took that away from us because it really didn't. But there was an emotional intimacy where I worried, and I now know that she worried, about being judged for our feelings or being ashamed of our feelings, um, of, like I said before, almost a fear of rejection or a fear of abandonment if we talked about how we really felt about things and things that you know, weren't happy or didn't make us happy, but we've had, you know, dozens of these difficult discussions to the point where they're really not difficult anymore. And if she's having a down day or a down period, you know, I'm there to lift her up genuinely um, where before I, you know, pat her on the back, say it was going to be okay and move on to whatever I had to do next. Um, You know, we carve out the time for each other's needs now. Um, whatever they may be. And it may be that, she, you know, we have the need to have fun today, so let's go to the county fair. Um, and that, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be uh, super deep all the time. But the fact is, you know, we were attracted to each other 17 years ago because we had fun with each other. And we've rediscovered what having fun with each other is um, on the, at the same time really getting to know the other person. And I don't think we did that for a variety of reasons early on. So it's, it's really all about just being there and being present and being in the moment and helping her to solve her problems and her helping me to solve mine, but not telling the other person, here's your solution. Go do this. Um, you know, it's, it's, yeah. you know, it's funny it's, that it's you not say 50, that. 50. Because... It's not 50-50. You know, it's not like it's not 50 50. It's like 65 35. Uh And that's far healthier to me than 50 or attempting to be 50 50 ever was. Yeah, I get that. And I was starting to say that it's really kind of interesting that you said be in the moment and have fun. And one of the things we know is that there was a study done on 20,000 people who had experienced all sorts of trauma and drama and life experiences. And they took an 87-question survey on what brought them happiness because these people proclaimed happiness. And interestingly enough, all 20,000 people, every single one of them, identified three things that were similar. One was they felt that their happiness – was dependent on their ability to stay in the moment, stay present with what's right here, you know, which obviously is for partners, betrayed partners, that can be very tough to do because remembering the past can help to protect you, but when you do it to extreme, it keeps you in the past. So 
staying in the moment was healthy. The second thing was having the attitude of gratitude, which for them meant looking at what's working. And just the fact that you and your wife could have so much fun at a county fair says that you're really working on being in the moment and having fun together and being best friends again. Um, And that's really important. And then the third thing was reframing. You know, they said, okay, how did this whole ordeal, how did it make me stronger and how am I going to grow from it? And it sounds like both you and your wife have really worked diligently on saying, okay, how can we grow from this so that we can grow ourselves up and grow ourselves better? And certainly that's what you've worked hard, very diligently to do. So will you remind us of the two books, the one book that you've written, the second book that you are writing, and how they can get a hold of your materials? What is your website? Absolutely. My website where you can get access to both books um, is called recoveringpornaddict.com. That's recoveringpornaddict.com. There's also a resources page where if you need connection to a rehab or 12-step groups or online communities, whatever you think might be the thing to help you, I have a big page of that as well. So you can check that out at recoveringpornaddict.com. Both of my books are there. The one that's already out is called The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About. Um, You can find it there or on Amazon. And then my next book that will be out hopefully uh, end of December is called um, He's a Porn Addict, Now What?, Uh, an expert and a former addict answer your questions. You can actually pre-order that through my website now. We're at 25% off. Um, And I said, it'll be out in a couple months. Um, So yeah, it's just, it's really about just trying to put some good out there. I took so much from the world and uh, now it's my time to put it back out there. And I'm starting to believe maybe I went through all of that for the reason to deliver me here today to try to, put some good back out in the world and maybe with enough time I'll actually put more good than I did bad. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great goal to shoot for. And what I know is uh, the intensity and frequency of light of goodness is a lot stronger than darkness. So I am sure that you're already doing a great job of, you know, equaling the score, if you will. Now, Have you seen any of the people that have arrested you? Have you seen your city council colleagues? How how have you dealt with that shame? Uh, For the most part, I have not seen those people. Um, The people who were close friends with me prior to my local celebrity stuck by my side um, and are still good friends with me today. The people who were, you know, who I don't want to say used me, but the people who I built relationships with because of my professional endeavors or because of my political endeavors, most of them uh, seem to have very little interest in ever talking to me. Um, I've reached out to some and some have been polite. I've reached out to others and got no response. Um, I think that isn't necessarily just because of the specific crime. I think that has to do with the fact that they feel betrayed that I presented myself as one thing and ended up being another. Um, I think a lot of them just felt duped that I was this great altruistic community guy, which I feel like a big part of me was, but then there was this closeted part of me um, that did heinous things that they could never imagine. And uh, the fact that I was able to do that, um, I think that's the part that's mostly unforgivable to them. So unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever way you look at it, most of those people are not in my life anymore. I've made a lot of friends through recovery. Um, I've made, uh, you know, my connections with my former friends and most of my family is stronger than it ever has been. So I'm not lonely. I'm not for want of people. I miss helping out in my community. I miss being part of doing the good things. But um, that's part of the price you have to make for making this horrible decision. and, And I accept that. Yeah, we're always talking about the natural and the logical consequences that occur when when you've had an infraction, when you've made bad decisions, and then how do you turn that around and, and make them right? 
And so you're saying that some of the natural consequences were understandably that people didn't figured out that they really didn't know you because they didn't know the full you. They knew the good you, but they didn't know that there was um, a deceitful you. And let's face it, when you're dealing with addiction, that that addict has to be deceitful to keep his addiction going. Now, I want to ask you one last question in, in terms of about your mental health. How's that bipolar doing? Because so many of the women that we talk to, their husbands do have a secondary mental health issue. Yeah, it's it's doing great because I stay on my medication. I pay hyper vigilance and awareness to when I'm starting to feel a little high or a little low. Um, there has been one time since um, I got out of jail about three and a half years ago, uh, about a year ago now, where I was starting to feel really low again and very anxiety ridden. So within, you know, a week or two of it being, you know, worse than it had been, I went and saw my doctor and we talked about it and we tweaked the medication a little and that did the trick. But it's really about paying attention to my mental health and making that, you know, one of my biggest priorities, which, um, you know, it, it, I used to take the pills, but I never really thought about it. And now I know what's possible when I don't take care of my mental health. So, um Knock on wood, I have it under wraps right now. The the cocktail of meds is working just fine, and uh, I'm able to keep an even keel and function pretty well in society. Well, yeah, it sounds like you really turned it around. And, you, you know, I don't know why this is. I've worked in mental health over 40 years, and we know of, of all the disorders in that DSM-5 that is the diagnostic statistical manual, people that have the most trouble staying on their medications have bipolar depression. I think it's the ups and downs. So I'm glad that you've learned from that and you know what you need to stay safe and stable because that's what we're always talking about with partners. What do you need to stay safe and, and stable? And for many partners, it's meetings, it's community, it's church, it's a healthy family, and it's a husband who's making a difference. And you sure are doing that. So we thank you today for contributing to to our community. Uh, this is, like I said, we've got a lot of clinicians and coaches that listen to the show, but this is primarily for partners. So um, so appreciate you letting them know a little bit about your journey. And thank you so much for giving me time to talk about it. You know, my, my hope is that there are people out there who need to hear that, you know, it, it's it's not 19-year-old pimply-faced geeks who live in their mom's basement and have never kissed a girl in real life who are porn addicts. You know, it's, it's, it's fathers and mothers and lawyers and doctors and, you know, anybody you can imagine can be a porn addict. And uh, there are people out there, it doesn't matter how great you think you are. Um, or how it could never be possible. Really, anybody can, you know, uh, can develop into a porn addict. You know, if I can, anybody can. And I just want to get that out there. That uh, if you feel like you have an issue with it, get some help because you don't want to end up where I was. Oh yeah, that's a great message. And again, will you repeat your website one last time? Absolutely. It is recoveringpornaddict.com. Okay. Well, continued success and keep keep doing the good work you're doing, and we'll talk soon. I will. All right. Thanks a lot, Carol. You're welcome, Joshua. Talk to you soon. And so, you know, one of the things that I know to be true, don't you hear me say that every week? One of the things I know to be true is that anybody can turn their life around if they're motivated to do so. And sex addicts have terrible self-esteem, terrible, and they want to feel better. Now, I teach them that there are two ways that you can really feel better other than to, to understand yourself and, and do a lot of reframing, shift those thoughts, um, use realistic affirmations, do the positive self-talk. That's what I teach them. But the two ways that I know for a fact that they can feel better about themselves 
is to help you heal by being in good recovery so that you can breathe a little bit easier and to develop empathy to let you know that they absolutely know that they caused your pain and they're willing to do what it takes to make it better. Then the second thing that they can do to improve their sense of self-esteem is to decide how they can give back in a healthy way to the community at large or to the world. You know, now maybe it's, you know, I've got a sex addict I work with and his choice is I'm going to be the best grandfather in the world. You know, I got another guy who says, you know what, I'm a stay-at-home dad and I'm going to really work on improving that relationship. So it doesn't have to be a big, grandiose, write a book, um, make a movie kind of thing, but it does have to leave one with a sense of purpose. Speaking of purpose, uh, my Help Her Heal online course is out. And I'm so excited about it. You go to my website, Sex Help with Carol the Coach, and this is an online course that uh, partners up with the book that I wrote the Empathy Workbook for Sex Addicts to Help Their Partners Heal. It's a great opportunity for him to see me, to hear me kind of do some therapy. I I go over a PowerPoint presentation for all 11 chapters. I talk to them about how you all feel and, and why it's important for them to stay the course, even when it doesn't look like you're getting any better. Um. I talked to them about how to notice the improvements that you're making because of the the changes they are making. And um, I have different opportunities for them to understand more about sex addiction. I include uh, the gifts of being a sex addict, you know, how they can how they can be better people because of it. I've got a podcast that I recorded with Patrick Carnes for them because it's very inspirational. Um, It is probably about 10 hours worth of video and 20 articles that I've written. And um, hopefully it's a lot of inspiration for them because I do my best to keep them positive. This is a hard road for them. When they decide that they are going to get healthy, it's a lot of work because they've got to help stay clean I give them the 10 recovery tools in this course. But more importantly, they have to help you heal. All right. And that can be found on www.sexhelpwithcarolthecoach. Now, I have two websites. One website is just to help you feel better um, as a person, male, female, young, or old. That's carolthecoach.com. This is my special, Carol the Coach. And it has to do with um, sex and addiction and partner betrayal. So that is www.sexhelpwithcarolthecoach. All right, we'll talk to you next week. And as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times. So fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. Make it a good one. Talk to you soon. And I mean that. I missed you last week. I know you probably don't believe that, but I did. I missed you big time. So just know that we at APSATS care. For more information, go to APSATS.org, the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, to find a professional in your area who is trained to help you after sexual betrayal.